How about that? Governor Mike DeWine came to Cleveland to talk about crime. It's something we've been wondering about for quite some time now. Finally happened. It's first up on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. Before we start, we mentioned yesterday those first energy cards, the, the refund HB6 shenanigans uh, for dollars and cents, tiny amounts that they would expire at the end of this month. They expire in August 2028. They're still pretty much useless. This is still a terrible scam, but the cards last longer so they can rattle around in your junk drawer for years. Let's begin. Governor Mike DeWine did come to Cleveland Wednesday to talk about crime. This, after all, is the summer of crime in the city, fueled by easy-to-steal cars and guns. Courtney, what did the governor have to offer a tired Cleveland, a weary Cleveland, Clevelanders that are sick of the crime? Yeah, the governor appeared for this big press conference yesterday at the 4th District on the city southeast side, and he, you know, was joined with local leaders who have been calling for more support from the state. And, and and DeWine outlined several ways the state's seeking to help address violent crime in Cleveland this summer, which, you know, as we know, a lot of folks are saying this, this wave is unprecedented. So DeWine announced the results of a surge of state troopers the day before on Tuesday that had fanned out across that whole southeast portion of the city. They used helicopters and cars and ultimately netted 20 felony arrests, they recovered four stolen cars and four illegal guns. And DeWine told us they may run, but they can't hide. He said every parent has the right to raise their children and live in a neighborhood free of crime and violence. And DeWine told us that surge of troopers will happen again sometime in the coming days, but but that won't be announced. We don't we won't know when they're amping up their efforts here. And separately, the governor talked about the Ohio investigative unit kind of surging up in Cleveland. The OIU does liquor control and and they'll be targeting places that sell alcohol that are that are known for illegal alcohol sales or drug trafficking, prostitution, things like that. And and broadly speaking, the state highway patrol troopers, they've been in Cleveland in higher numbers since May to do largely traffic enforcement, right? But at some point they said yesterday that the the patrol started helping with criminal investigations. Yeah, I I haven't seen a trooper anywhere in the city, so I find it hard to believe that it's ramped up that much. What's good about this is up until now, because Cleveland police are so decimated, there was no pushback on the Kia boys. I mean, these guys were just going out, stealing cars left and right, racing around with guns, and, and it's been a rampage with no accountability, no pushback. At least there's pushback. At least those guys now know that on any given day, there could be a massive sweep in which they get locked up for the rest of the summer. It was about time they did something like this. We have desperately needed the help. I wonder how much of an effect it has. If you were running around stealing cars and and causing all kind of hooliganism, would this worry you that on any given day, there's going to be helicopters and patrol cars everywhere? You know, one thing that struck me about this whole whole big to-do with the governor yesterday was, I mean, it sure seems that, you know, Bibb's been pointing the finger at Columbus, talking about essentially lax gun laws. And and this appears, this finger pointing at Columbus, I mean, I guess it appears to have inspired some response from Columbus. But, you know, reporter John Tucker kind of injected some 
reality here in the story as well. You know, everyone was talking about partnerships and working with the state, but there are short-term partnerships between the state and local officials. That's a pretty routine thing we do see in Cleveland. And DeWine acknowledged that yesterday, Tucker reported, and it's still kind of unclear what makes these collaborations that have been happening recently different than collaborations that routinely occur. But um, DeWine, we asked him why why such a level of collaboration, if this is like what it appears to be a bigger boost than normal, we asked him why such a level of collaboration hasn't been standard procedure throughout the year. And, and he told us we can't promise, what we can't promise is that every day we'll have a helicopter up or involved in other communities. So, you know, this is helpful, like you said, but there is like some routineness that's part of this too. The other thing that I'm surprised we're not seeing, we do have a lot of police departments in Cleveland. It's not just Cleveland. CMHA has one. The the RTA has one. Metro Health, University Hospitals, Cleveland Clinic, University Circle. I mean, they go on and on and on. Why not coordinate with all of them? So when you go out on a day like yesterday to sweep, you can do it with twice as many and really get the the message out that we're all working together on this. It would probably build better intelligence gathering as well. I, I'm just glad we saw something because up until now, for the kids that are stealing the cars, there really was no no retribution. I mean, once in a while, police might arrest one, but there wasn't anything to say, cut it out. There are consequences for your actions. And as we talked earlier this week, the number of cars stolen in this city doubled in the first six months of this year compared to last year. So that's out of control. Thanks, Mike DeWine, for coming. Hope we see you again. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why did Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose, fresh off his humiliating defeat over issue one, that's given him tons of national attention as the loser of the year, why did he part ways from his much-respected spokesman, Laura? Because he slammed Trump on Twitter. And we don't really know the details of this. We don't know if Rob Nichols got fired or he quit. But this happened days after some Trump allies who some of them support his opponent, Bernie Moreno, uh, um, Frank LaRose's opponent in the Senate race, called attention to several social media posts that Nichols made on Twitter. They criticized, they insulted Trump. His name doesn't appear on the deleted account. Yeah, since deleted account. But it's 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 possible to piece together the identity by details he previously shared. But what's interesting about this is that LaRose was not all pro-Trump until very recently. And he was critical of him in the past, didn't endorse him in 2016 and 2020. But and also, I would like to point out, as some people at our newsroom did yesterday, this is not a campaign spokesman. This is a spokesman for the Ohio Secretary of State. He is paid by taxpayers, not LaRose's campaign contributions. Look, reporters form relationships with spokespeople and there's give and take. The best spokespeople understand this is a big game and they get Mm -hmm. to know each other. There's not a lot of animosity. Rob Nichols is way up on the scale of quality spokespeople. When he was with John Kasich, reporters largely respected him. He's a decent guy. When we were putting the ballot together, the, the absentee ballot application to run in the plain dealer and online for issue one, it was his office that certified, yes, you're good to go. That's the right one. Others didn't go through that step and put the wrong one out. But but Rob's a good guy. And 
I, it's stunning that Frank LaRose would get rid of him or part ways with him over something like this. It's just more evidence that Frank LaRose is just a terrible leader. He's a coward. He's a, you know, sycophant now to Trump. And like you said, Laura, he used to be opposed to Trump, but now he wants to be Senate and he's begging for Trump's endorsement. Uh, it just it shows Ohio more and more how lacking in character this guy is. It, it is. And actually, I was reading an Inquirer story from 2020 where he said he wouldn't endorse a candidate for president because it's the job of the elections. You know, he's the chief of the elections in Ohio. He has got to make sure they're secure and safe. And he wanted to be, you know, encourage civility in politics, he said. He told them that making self-government work again may be my generation's man on the moon. And I was like, wow, this was three years ago. And look how far he's come and also how much has devolved since then. And I just thought that was fascinating that he's gotten to the point where his spokesman is no more because he criticized a, a president who's under, what are we at, four indictments on Twitter. I suspect Rob Nichols uh, is not disappointed to be gone. The Frank LaRose he originally joined to be a spokesman for the office is not the Frank LaRose today. And and Rob probably has more integrity. And I wish his, him luck. I mean, I, yeah. I think you're right. He is an upstanding guy and hopefully he'll represent somebody else and we'll work with him again. Yeah, I hope so. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, you get a meaty one. How does former Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor think issue one will affect her drive to end gerrymandering by removing elected officials from drawing district lines? She seems to think that the uh, issue one election and results have actually educated voters on the constitutional amendment process. And she also believes that momentum will carry through November 2024. Um Maureen O'Connor joined Citizens Not Politicians, which is a coalition for a constitutional amendment to establish a 15-member independent redistricting committee on the 2024 ballot. They did submit their first batch of signatures to the Attorney General's office this week for verification. So yeah, she feels like, you know, people have learned more about, you know, how constitutional amendments are done, how they get on the ballot, um, you know, how hard they are to pass sometimes. And when they do pass, it kind of really shows, you know, the will of the people. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And she's one of two su- former Ohio Supreme Court justices on this coalition. The other one is Yvette McGee Brown, who's a Democrat. Um, they will need more than 100,000 signatures, like, I don't know how many, but more than 100,000 signatures to get on the ballot next year. Maureen O'Connor is a force of nature. So when she gets behind an idea, I I would bet heavily that she's going to get it through. She did all the right things as the chief justice during the redistricting. Three of her Republican colleagues were going along party lines. They did not have a legitimate reason to dissent, and they kept dissenting. I mean, Justice DeWine didn't even get off the, the case involving his father, as we talked about. And she held the line. She kept saying, no, no, you got to go back and do it again. And she remember in her first opinion on this, she basically did a a opinion that said, hey, Ohio, you ought to look at this because putting elected officials on this doesn't work. So when she left office, she dedicated herself these last eight months to putting together this proposal. And I think she's right. I think issue one has awakened a bunch of people to the fact that Matt Huffman and company are trying to amass power instead of serving the public. 
And that will carry into next year. 2024 is going to be a hell of an election year. You got the president, you got the Senate, you're going to have gerrymandering. And if the people who woke up to issue one and spoke so loudly about issue one recognize what's happening to our government, she she's right. That momentum could be meaningful. Yeah. And she, like you said, she spent eight months drafting this proposal with several co-authors and they did look at other states, Michigan in particular, but they say they want a plan that's specifically for Ohio. And some of the early details, they want to keep current and former elected officials, party operatives, lobbyists, and large political donors off of the commission. They are not allowed to be elected or appointed. Members will be selected by a panel of four retired judges, two Democrat and two Republican. And then the the panel will select 45 finalists from these applicants divided amongst Democratic, Republican, and independent members. And it's kind of a complicated process from here on out. They'll draw randomly six names from the finalists, those six will choose the nine remaining members of the redistricting commission from the other finalists. I'm sure there are more details that they'll be working out. What I love about this story is we have the the hero and the villain. Maureen O'Connor, the, the champion of the people, the hero, Frank LaRose, the snidely whiplash trying to keep <laughs> us from doing anything right. So it'll be a fun story to cover in 2024. You're listening to today in Ohio. Lots of machinations continue behind closed doors as the Haslams continue to seek public money for a major renovation of the football stadium or a new one. It was even an icky looking dinner that they had at the Shoreby Club with the mayor, Justin Bibb, and the county executive, Chris Ronane, that they're not talking about. Not a good look for those guys. In the meantime, though, Courtney, the city of Cleveland has to keep maintaining the stadium. And what is the latest bill? Yeah, Cleveland got what's essentially its annual bill for stadium repairs, and council yesterday was moving that through. I guess the good news this time around is that it's only $3.4 million for taxpayers for this year's bill. Last year, it was around $10 million. But this go around, the bulk of the money is to repair pedestrian ramps. Basically, the material they're made of has been corroding, and and that's just something they got to keep up with. They call that an emergency repair But this money also includes some gutter repairs and to fix the air conditioning in one area of the stadium. You know, $3.4 million for that. You know, this this doesn't have to do with those ongoing discussions about a potential upgrade for the stadium that's looking more down the road at the next lease, right? This year's money still falls under the terms of that original lease from the 90s. And the city says, you know, we have to pay these. If we don't, we're in violation of our contract with the Browns, and basically they could take us to court. So city, you know, says they have no choice. But we, you know, this whole discussion of, of where we're going with the stadium and what that future deal is going to look like, I mean, that loomed large. Anytime you talk about the stadium now, everyone's just kind of waiting to see what the, the next big potentially public expenditure will be there. And Oh, or if there isn't one. I mean, I I do think there is a sentiment this time around that there is no public money. Cleveland's broke. County's broke. County has to build a jail and a justice center. And maybe there are creative ways to do this outside of the public sphere. Time is running out, though. I mean, the lease expires in 2026, right? So you're three years away. If you're going to do a major project, you got to start getting to the brass tacks of it to get it done before 2026. 2028. 
Um, so is it 2028? All right. So we got five years. We're at, we got plenty of time then. We can, <laughs> we can have more Sherby Club dinners and more more mystique. I'm pretty sure the Guardians deal too ran up closer to the end of the lease expiration. I mean, the, it's, you'll expect some kind of resolution. But yeah, no, now is an important time. And kind of those future potential costs loomed large in the room yesterday. Whenever the stadium comes up, like everyone's thinking about what could be coming down the road with it. And, you know, the mayor's office of capital projects director, Jamie DeRosa kind of gave a nod to that. He was explaining to council that, you know, he said the Browns have been very practical with what actually needs to be repaired through these annual requests versus what they might seek in an eventual wish list that would be folded into a potential public financing deal. And, you know, DeRosa said that, you know, the city and or the Browns, you know, we really make sure it's pared down to what's needed. So he said, quite frankly, we don't run out of money to make these repairs. So, you know, the city's saying that they're being diligent about the money they're sinking into this facility in the run up to what could be another major public investment. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The judge in the federal case against Donald Trump for his efforts to overthrow our government had something to say about the January 6th insurrection when she sentenced an Ohio defendant. Laura, does it real, reveal any bias the judge might have against the former president? And that's what Trump thinks, and that's what he took to his true social media platform on Monday to question the impartiality of this judge, the federal judge. She's out of uh, Washington, D.C., and she's a high, a high, assigned to hear the election conspiracy case against him. And do you remember the case of Christine Priola, the teacher who sentenced in Willoughby from oh, January yeah. 6th? This is what the one we're talking about. So she sentenced her last October, and the judge, um, her name is Chutkin. She, uh, Tanya Chutkin, who would, by the way, has been appointed since June 2014, and she's born in Kingston, Jamaica, which is interesting. She basically said she she went along the sentencing guidelines, but she said that she had never up before broke the law and she didn't hurt anybody, but she was among the first people in the building. So she has this very long statement about why she's giving the sentence where she did what she does. And the part that Trump quoted says, I see the videotapes. I see the footage of the flags and the signs that people were carrying and the hats they were wearing and the garb and the people who mobbed the Capitol were there in fealty and loyalty to one man, not the, to the constitution of which most of the people who come before me seem woefully ignorant, not to the ideals of this country and not to the principles of democracy. It's a blind loyalty to one person who, by the way, remains free to this day. So I think that remains free to this day is what Trump is talking about, that he she obviously wants him behind bars. But she doesn't have a diatribe against Trump. Her speech was very long and detailed. You know what this is about? I mean, Trump is very clearly a white supremacist. It's killing him that a black judge is going to hold his fate in his hands and he wants to get rid of her. That's that, that, you, well, I'm sure he wants to get rid of every judge and replace them with yeah, people who are but Trump-sters. I mean, come on. He has played to the white supremacists across the country, so it's got to just eat away at him that this is the judge who's on his case. She's not biased. If you look at her record, she's an esteemed jurist who has done a terrific job. There's no reason she should be removed from the case, but it's it's killing him that he's got to answer to her. 
Yeah, she got her bachelor's degree from George Washington University and her JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where she was associate editor of the Law Review and a legal writing fellow. So, I mean, I went and looked up her bio and I was like, she seems very impressive. Well, and she's put him on notice that if he keeps up this nonsense, she's going to hasten the trial and get this done quickly. She seems like she is not going to put up with nonsense. And the only way, if he gets convicted, that he's going to get out of it is if he gets elected and pardons himself. Interesting story by Sabrina Eaton. It's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. We've wondered whether the recreational marijuana question that is now definitely headed to the November ballot will have organized opposition. Lisa, now we know. Yes, we do know. And we also know as of yesterday that the recreational marijuana uh, statute will make it to the November ballot. They did certify the signatures. So there's a coalition of various groups that are gearing up to oppose this. They're calling themselves Protect Ohio Workers and Families. So some of the people who have signed on to this include the Ohio Children's Hospital Association, the Buckeye Sheriff's Association, Ohio Adolescent Health Association, Ohio Veterans First, the Ohio Association of Chiefs of Police, the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association, Veterans Court Watch, and a group called Smart Approaches to Marijuana. And some of the committee members include former Republican Chair Jane Timken and Senator Mark Romanchuk of the Republican from Richland County and Smart Approaches CEO Kevin Sabat. So Nick Lashutka, who's with the, he's the CEO of the Ohio Children's Hospital Association says recklessly expanding access to marijuana will exacerbate problems that are threatening children's lives and health, including in unintentional ingestion of medical marijuana products, poisonings, and etc. Uh, a committee member, Angela Phillips, who's the CEO of Phillips Tube Group in Southwest Ohio, says this campaign will be David versus Goliath, them being David, of course, they think. They say it's not easy, but it's necessary to avoid deterioration in other states that have been tricked into believing the marijuana lie. She says that recreational marijuana will forever damage Ohio if we let this happen. But the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, they've actually shortened their name. They're calling it Just Like Alcohol. Tom Heron says, we're confident that voters know our message. Then they'll see through any inaccurate information from the opposition. He says they will have to do more than the same old debunked talking points that voters and 20 other states have rejected. Yeah, there's a good debate to be had on this, but this group has already come out strident and ridiculous. Instead of trying to have a debate, what should Ohio do? What's best for the children? They're they're jumping up and down and lighting a fire. The thing is, when you look at them, none of them are big money groups. And this is going to be about the advertising. The pro-marijuana folks are going to be well-moneyed I don't know where these guys are going to get their money. Who Who's going to fund the anti-campaign? That's actually a very good question. And I mean, you know, the Just Like Alcohol campaign has a running head start. They've already raised $3 million. And, you know, they've got another couple of months to raise more money. So it'll be interesting to see how this, what the opposition campaign looks like and whether they'll have enough money for TV ads. Well, and the, the, we know from polling that the electorate largely favors legalization of marijuana. So they have to erode some of that and they're not going to do it with this kind of screeching. I mean, if they had a thoughtful approach to it, maybe, but so far you could see right off the bat, it was this kind of crazy 
kind of stuff we saw in issue one didn't work. Well, and they're using that protect word. You remember, you know, protect Ohio yeah. women. That's the, you know, the anti-abortion group. And now they're saying protect Ohio workers and families. So that's their buzzword, protect. <laughs> and it didn't work in issue one. Actually, it kind of did. We did protect the Constitution from outside interests by <laughs> defeating issue one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. No one expected Mike DeWine would run for office again after he completes his second term as governor. How did he make that official this week, Courtney? Yeah, he closed out his political spending and contributions by terminating a state political campaign account. So he filed that paperwork. It's over. He's term limited. He's got to leave office in 2027. So like you said, this isn't that big of a surprise, but how he closed out the account is is noteworthy here. And so, so what happened is he had just slightly over $4 million left in that account after he beat Nan Whaley last November. And DeWine used that remaining $4 million to pay himself back finally for $4 million he spent during his first run for governor back in 18. That was a tight year, close race with Democratic ri- candidate Richard Cordray. So he needed a little bit of um, self-help with that spending, and, and he finally got around to paying himself back. And now that he has that money, maybe he can go buy some better players for his minor league baseball team. <laughs> you know, th- this kind of practice of, of loaning yourself money and paying yourself back, it, it does happen. It's it's legal. It's it's pretty common, at least from candidates who are independently wealthy. As we know, DeWine does come from, you know, money, that family business that started out in agriculture items before it branched into other things, like you said, that minor league baseball team. So we do see politicians moving their personal funds over and then back in. It, it does get some criticism from fellow donors who want to see that money spent out on campaigns. But DeWine's been saying he was going to pay himself back for years now. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Inc. Magazine's list of the 5,000 fastest growing companies in the United States has a bunch from Ohio. Or what are some of the greater Cleveland businesses to make the list? Well, would you have picked sauerkraut? Actually, yeah, I would. That company is on fire. (laughs) It is. It's Cleveland Kitchen, formerly Cleveland Kraut. That tops the list among companies in Cleveland. Fun that flip was second in the area, and the Connect Group in Shaker Heights was third. So Inc. Magazine ranks these companies based on revenue growth. In the latest listings, they look at the percentage of growth from 2019 to 2022 for this specific uh, listing and a company had to be gener- generating revenue before March 2019. It has to be a private corporation, not publicly traded, and needs to be based in the United States. So Cleveland Kitchen's revenue grew by 621 percent in three years. So overall, on that huge list, it was 956. Some of these are incredibly, incredibly fast growing. Nashville-based CareBridge is the fastest growing company in the United States, grown its revenue by 157,144 percent. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty good. It's hard to even say, right? And the fastest growing in Ohio is Live Shopper Sassy. That's a software company based in Finley, grown by thirty seven thousand three hundred eighty six percent. So, obviously, these folks are are onto something. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We saved the sweetest story for last, Lisa. How can the best cookie in our area come from a pizza shop? 
Well, I first want to say that the best cookie is a very subjective thing, and I'm actually <laughs> like on the hunt for the best chocolate chip cookie in Cleveland. So anyway, the Ohio Cookie Company is an in-house bakery at the Ohio Pie Company Pizza Shops in Brunswick and Rocky River. The uh, baker and owner, Katie Warner, she makes up to 3,000 cookies a week, and she, she can sell 1,000 just on Fridays alone between the two shops. Now, she started out selling uh, her cookies at bodybuilder and powerlifting shows and started to gain a following. Now, she was in a 10-year relationship with Ohio Pie owner Nick Robson until last year, but they still worked together amicably, and they sat and they thought they really needed a dessert option at Ohio Pie. So Katie said, let me make some cookies. She has no written recipes, nothing written down. She offers about 25 flavors on any given day. They're always changing. And she even has at least four vegan options available on any given day. She says the very favorite one is the Reese's one. It's a cookie covered with Reese's pieces and stuffed with a peanut butter cup. Um, Another favorite is a blue cookie called the Cookie Monster, the birthday cake flavor, and one that's inspired by frosted animal crackers. I don't know how you could do that without writing anything down. She must have like an eidetic memory so, or something. Right. But, but the, the idea of getting your start by selling at bodybuilding shows, is is cookie eating part of bodybuilding? <laughs> I thought the same thing. Like, shouldn't they be protein shakes? But Alex Darris brought these into the office and cut them up into maybe like sixth or something like that. And everybody got to taste a couple. And the Reese's one really is incredible. Um, and Ohio Pie is in Rocky River. So we've written about them before. And it was, I think, Annie Nikoloff had written about their like secret menu pizzas. They have a fried pickle pizza that has potato chips on it that is amazing. Do you go there regularly? I haven't. It hasn't happened for a while. I have to find somebody else who will eat the fried pickle pizza with me. Nobody else in my family is open to that, but good for them. I'm glad that, the, you know, it's a local shop and, and the cookies really are delicious. I still want- And I am tempted. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Lisa. I was going to say, I was tempted when I read the article. I was tempted. Oh, I'm going to have to make the drive. Of course, it's like a 25 mile drive to either location for me, but still in the quest for the, you know, the perfect cookie, I I will do that. I'm telling you right now, I'm not impressed by insomnia cookies. I'm not impressed by crumble cookies. The best chocolate chip cookie, in my opinion, in Cleveland is on the rise, Artisan Bakery. All right. And I still want to understand this whole getting the cookies off the ground at bodybuilding <laughs> shows. There's a story there. I just don't know what it is. That's it for the Thursday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. Friday, we'll wrap up a week of news. 